Hello, church. Am I coming through? All right. We had a, I had a microphone failure in the other room right at the end of the sermon, or at the end of the service. So I want to make sure we're still working. Hi, my name is Wade Giffen, one of the pastors here, along with my colleague and friend, Pastor Katie. And I'm good, uh, good to be with you and good to see you here in the room and those of you who are online as well. Um, our uh, scripture passage that is appointed for this day in, uh, in Lent comes from Luke chapter 15. If you want to follow along, it starts at the first verse. We get three, and then we jump uh, over to uh, verse 11. Hear now this good news about Jesus according to Luke. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near to listen to him, and the Pharisees and scribes were grumbling and saying, this fellow welcomes sinners and eats with them. So he told them a parable. There was a man who had two sons. The younger of them said this to his father. Father, give me the share of the property that will belong to me. So he divided his property between them. Then a few days later, the younger son gathered all he had and traveled to a distant country. And there he squandered his property in dissolute living. When he had spent everything, a severe famine took place throughout that country. And he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He would gladly have filled himself with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have bread enough and to share? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up and go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired hands. So he set off and went on his way to his father. But while he was still far off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran and put his arms around him and kissed him. Then the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring out a robe, the best one, and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and get the fatted calf and kill it and let's feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. And they began to celebrate. Now the elder son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. He called one of the slaves and he asked what was going on. And he replied, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has got him back safe and sound. Then he became angry and refused to go in. His father came out and began to plead with him, but he answered his father, Listen, for all these years I have been working like a slave for you, and I have never disobeyed your command, yet you have never given me even a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came back who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fatted calf for him. Then the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, because this brother of yours was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found. 
So his boys were suffering from some pretty debilitating personal struggles. <laughs> kind of shows up in the story today, doesn't it? And you, you probably already have a sense for where this sermon's going to go because it is the inclination of the preacher to invite us to take a look at the characters in the story, uh, define them, and then think about where we identify with them and, uh, and, and get some understanding from it. And, and there's nothing wrong with that approach. I mean, that's, that's what I've done almost every time I had this text. And let me tell you, when it showed up for today, that was my first inclination uh, um, as well. But as I have spent time in this text and studying and, and reading it, um, there's something that has emerged from this text that I'm not sure I ever noticed before. And as I began to pray about how we would talk about that today, I became um, more and more convinced that, um, that this is a word um, from the Lord. And you know, I don't use that term very often, but um, for, for us today. And, uh, and I began to see this show up all over my life, in what I read. And um, so, you know, we preachers say, well, that just might be confirmation. And then like I was like a kid with Pastor Katie, I'll say, that almost made me believe in the Holy Spirit. How about you? <laughs> that was okay to laugh at the Holy Spirit joke, by the way. Um, the story points out hum some human suffering and human frailty in ways that I think lots of us are struggling with right now. So in our series, Cultivating and Letting Go, um, during Lent as we prepare for Easter, today's is this, cultivating self-compassion and letting go of perfectionism. So why self-compassion and perfectionism? As I began to look at the story in the text today, I see that play, playing out in the story. I, I saw it in the older brother who was indignant about his little brother's return and that party his dad threw for him. He re rehearses the feelings that he has, uh, that he's done everything the right way. He's done everything his father expected. He tried to do everything as perfectly as he possibly could, and he was living under the weight of trying to be perfect. His perfectionism seems to have a grip on him. It, it impacted his capacity to think clearly about the situation and have a little forgiveness for his brother. He, he didn't go to the party. And, and it probably, as we know family systems, probably plays itself out in the, the family um, by impacting his, his, the, the stress and anxiety he has for his place in the family. And it makes me wonder if he even had the capacity to ever be kind to himself if something didn't work out or didn't go perfectly. Or what if he made a mistake? And the younger brother, I mean, he has an absolute opposite situation. His imperfection is out for the world to see, right? There it is. And it must have operated at a really deep level with him. I mean, he blew it. And he knows it. He might just be wondering if his imperfection, if his mistakes would ever allow him to someday be in a different place. Could he survive the errors 
of his past. I wondered about what his motivation for coming home was. Was his motivation for coming home that he was just seeking some self-preservation? You know, things went pretty badly, and uh, I'm just going to go home because I know I at least get a, get a meal at Dad's, right? Or was his motivation to return some actual sense of regret, some contrition for what he'd done? I, we don't really know. I've often wondered about that. But that's not important because the good news is this, gang. The father doesn't care what his motivation was to return home. You see, what mattered to the father was that when he looked up at the horizon, this boy was coming toward him, and he could only have love and compassion without regard to the motivation for that boy to come home. He just wanted to love on him. It wasn't important in the moment. I'm going to have a hunch they probably got to that stuff a little bit later. <laughs> but at that moment, it wasn't important. He wanted to embrace his son. He didn't care if that boy had learned his lesson or if he was ready to change or if he hit rock bottom. He was just overjoyed in his return in that moment. So when we have situations like this, grace runs deep. When it's God to whom we return, it, it, it's undeniable in this story that grace is runs through the whole thing. Grace, God's love for us, God's love is not judgmental. God's love makes room for mistakes. God's love, God loves us and always embraces us when we come. So how does this play out for us? Well, I have a hunch, because I live in this community, that um, this is something that probably almost every one of us struggles with. Some more than others, um, but, but we all have this experience. So I want to look at these two pieces. Let's, let's give perfectionism a run first. One of the things that, um, that happened to me that was a confirmation about this this week is that I'm currently reading a book by Brene Brown, and the title is The Gifts of Imperfection. And um, I kid you not, there is a paragraph in that book that has the exact same title as the title of this message today. Um, and so I really dug into that, and it was a meaningful and helpful chapter to me. And I will confess to you that um, in many ways, the stuff that I read there kind of wrecked me because it revealed to me that I, like you, really suffer from this stuff. I saw cracks in my otherwise attempt at perfection. And what it's caused me to do in this season of Lent, I'll just tell you some of the stuff I'm working on, is that it fundamentally I made some personal decisions about my own life and the unhealthy relationship I have with perfectionism this week. One of the things that I really, really noticed and never, never had seen this before until I read this in, in, in Brene's book, I never thought about the fact that where perfectionism exists, you can often find shame lurking right around it. In fact, sometimes shame serves as the birthplace for perfectionism. When, we, when feeling we aren't achieving our best or the highest, often we feel ashamed and shame creeps in. And the natural response is to make a move towards perfectionism. We think that'll fix it. This might be especially relevant for us in the culture of the community in which we live. Gang, we live.
high-demand, high-expectation community. We suffer from comparison to all the others around us. We suffer from being parents of children in our schools where we constantly measure our children's capacity and performance in whatever area, sports, academics, music, you name it, in relation to the ranking of all the other kids. We look at the size of our house, the condition of our marriages, the model year of our automobile, the liquidity of our checking account, what other people think of us, you name it. And when we look there, we see the cracks. Those cracks make us feel shame. And you know what? It leads often to perfectionism. There's a couple of things that um, I want to lift from Brene Brown's book that have been really helpful from this week. The first is this. Perfectionism is not the same as striving to do your best. So this is no excuse for not working hard, right? But per perfectionism is not the same as striving to do your best. Perfectionism is, about, um, is not about healthy achievement and growth. Perfectionism is a false belief that if we look perfect, if we act perfect, if we live perfect, we can avoid pain, pain of the blame or judgment or shame or anything. So perfectionism is not the same as striving to do our best. Second is perfectionism is not self-improvement. It's more often trying to earn approval and acceptance, which, which leads to a dangerous and debilitating belief system that so many of us have adopted. And that belief system goes this way. Listen carefully. It goes this way. It says, I am, me, I, I am what I accomplish and how well I accomplish it. That runs rampant in our culture. I am what I accomplish, and how well I do it. Now, there's an alternative, and the alternative is healthy striving. Healthy striving is doing our very best because healthy striving is self-focused, looking at ways to improve just bit by bit. But perfectionism is other focus, is outwardly focused, looking at what other, people's th other people think about us. Do you see a difference between healthy striving, you know, working bit by bit, and being other-focused, worried about what everybody else thinks about us? We fool ourselves into thinking that striving towards perfection is the solution and the difficulties to the feelings of shame. But here, research shows that the absolute opposite happens. Since perfection is not possible, every slip, every lack in judgment, Everything that doesn't work out adds another brick to the wall, and that's not a reference to Pink Floyd. It often leads to life paralysis. We often get to the place where we don't try things or we don't risk things if there's the potential that we're going to fail at something and we not, might not get it exactly right, and so it just drives us a little down deeper. So what do we do? We don't try it. We don't risk it. We don't, as the Brits would say, give it a go. Because in doing so, we might, we might fail. And then we lose out of all kinds of amazing possibilities. We limit the ways that contribute to the world God created us 
for. And I, I, I know this thing. Somebody asked me last week, said, hey, wait, do you play golf? You want to go play golf? I said, oh, no, I don't play golf. Um, I had a really bad experience on the seventh hole of Newman Golf Course 35 years ago, and I've never been back. Made a deal with God on the golf course. Any of you golfers ever make a deal with God on the golf course? Thank you for being the one honest person in the room. Um, but when I was talking to that person last week, I said, you know, I, I can't golf, so I just know I'm going to fail. I'm just not going to do something that I know I'm going to fail at. But who knows? I might actually be able to hit a golf ball once in my life. I know this because I experience life paralysis because I won't do something perfectly or, God forbid, I fail. Friends, no part of our lives is perfect, nor will it ever be perfect. If perfection is what we seek, we will never be satisfied. If perfection is all we seek, we will never experience joy. We will never live up to our God-given potential. Let me let you in on something. No marriage is perfect. No kids are perfect. No body image is perfect. No friendship is perfect. No house is perfect. No church is perfect. Fill in the blank. No is perfect. And parents, grandparents, you're not off the hook either. Aunts and uncles, you're not off the hook either. We adults breed this unhealthy thing in our children as well because they see it and they watch it and they copy it. I was reminded of that this last Wednesday. I was already deep into the writing of this sermon and at 5.21 p.m. I got the phone call no parent wants to get. It was one of my sons. He had a massive sound of distress in his voice and he said, Dad, I think I'm okay, but I've just had a crash. That call came moments after he turned in front of an oncoming car and got plowed by it. He said when he called, there was still airbag smoke in the air of his car. So what did we do? We jumped in our car and we raced to the scene of the crash. He was beside himself. He, he could barely breathe. He was hyperventilating. He, he couldn't articulate. And what I figured out he was saying to me is that he was loathing himself because of what he had just done. He told me that he was sitting at that light in that intersection, preoccupied by obsessing over some things at work he couldn't get perfect. And he was driving home from work obsessing. And he said, I was so distracted, I just turned left, crashed. In his mind, he failed. So we got him over to our house and we just sat down with him. And y'all, y'all, let me tell you, I saw this sermon with my eyes in my living room that night playing out right in front of me. 
it doesn't take very much of your imagination to know that I have wrestled with perfectionism all my life. And so I decided that in being a dad, I was not going to have my children suffer from the same thing. So I was careful about how I talked about their schoolwork. I was careful about how I talked about how their music sounded or their play on the athletic field so that I wouldn't breed perfectionism. But you know what? He watched me do something very different, and he learned it from me. And it crushed me Wednesday to see that. So I gave him that chapter from Brene Brown's book, and we read it together on FaceTime. And in that conversation with my boy, I confess that I felt complicit with him feeling such shame because of the accident. And together we decided that we we're going to start working at being kind to ourselves and live more healthy striving and ask God to free us from this perfectionism. Now, by the way, I do have my son's permission to share this story. I sent it to him and said, is this okay? And he said, yes. You know, he works in a church. He gets it. Now, let me tell you one other thing about that experience. I had to tell myself to be kind to me as well. Because I don't think until that moment I had rarely ever really realized how much perfectionism I had sown in him. And so I was, I was ready to feel shame because of what I was experiencing with my own child there. But then I reminded myself that I'm talking about being kind to yourself. Have some compassion. And here's what I was able to see. In the larger arc of, um, of being his dad, of the things that I have done well in my life, I think one of them is being a dad in the larger arc. Clinical psychologist Christopher Germer once wrote this, a moment of self-compassion can change an entire day, and a string of such moments can change the course of your life. Hey, y'all, give yourself a break. Cut yourself some slack. Be kind to yourself. I think both of the boys in our story today needed to learn about self-compassion. That younger boy probably needed to know how to, about that to be able to pick himself up. And that older brother probably needed to know that so that he could make some room for joy in his life. So why? Why would we want to let go of perfectionism? And why would we want to cultivate self-compassion? Well, at the highest level, first and foremost, it's, it's rooted in our identity as a child of God. Because no matter the perceived failure, no matter the falling short of perfection, no matter what it is, um, you name it, God is not going to put that action ahead of God's love for us. God's just not going to do that. Never forget that. Never, lo never lose that. God always leads with love first. So I think the answer to the question, why would we want to cultivate and, um, and uh, let go in this way? And I think it's twofold. There's an inward piece and there's an outward piece. So I'll just tell you where we're going so you can ride with me here. First, the inward piece. Why? Because it's for our own well-being. You know, God wants us to be whole persons, W-H-O-L-E, whole, which is different than being well. Do you know the difference between wholeness and wellness? Wellness is, just relates to one area of our lives. Just say like, 
physical health. I'm healthy today, I woke up okay, and so I've got wellness of body. But wholeness is so much more than that. Wholeness, wholeness means we have wellness in a lot of areas of our lives. Like we're well in body, and we're well in mind, and we're well in spirit, and we're well in relationship. And you add all that up, and it's what God's desire for us is, and that is to be whole. If we are broken because we're not kind to ourselves, if we're broken because we are captive to perfectionism, we cannot ever be well, not to mention whole. So because Lent is a time to look deeply into ourselves, if, if you could let go and cultivate in this way, there's a strong potential for a personal breakthrough in some area of your life that's been a log jam for a long time. So the second answer to the question why is, is outwardly focused. It's more around our impact on the world. You see, if we're not kind to ourselves and if we're enslaved to perfectionism, it impacts the way that we see other people. It, it distorts our vision in how we see other people and how we see the world. When we are not kind to ourselves, it impacts that. It's, and it's suggested that when we have negative behavior toward somebody else, or we have challenges with somebody else. Have you ever heard this? Where they say that often it's because you see something in them you don't like about yourself. You ever heard, you ever heard that? Um, I think William Shakespeare was on to something when he wrote Hamlet. And he put in that line, thou dost protest a bit too much, methinks. We know that it's often um, attributed to folks who are so aggressive towards something in someone else as a result of something they see in themselves that they love. Now, I have a hunch that as we become more and more kind to ourselves, we would also become more kind and understanding to the people and the world around us. And that will make us better ambassadors for sowing seeds for Jesus of grace and love and kindness and peace into the world. Yesterday, um, Debbie and I had a day-long date because it was our 34th wedding anniversary. And hallelujah, made that one. Congratulations, Mrs. Giffen. Um, but you know, preachers can't ever give up. They're always writing on their sermons, no matter where they are. And so yesterday, as we were doing a number of things, we, um, I just decided I was going to just practice kindness toward people that I saw throughout the day that I imagined they didn't always get kindness, right? And what I began to experience are two amazing things. One is I shocked people, I could tell because I was actually kind to them. We were at that Franklin Park Conservatory was one place. Isn't that a cool place? That was one of the places we were. And we, we were going into the butterfly room. Y'all been there? And you know how you have to go through like the butter butterfly airlock so that the butterflies can't get in and out? And the woman who was at the door, um, she, I could tell she was having a day. So I just practiced some kindness with her in the time that we were waiting to go in. And, and she was beside herself that there was a patron who came through that was just decided to be kind. Now that's, that's the one thing. Now don't, don't get, make me feel like I'm all virtuous and all here because here's the other thing that happened. Their reaction impacted me and it became the motivation in my heart to look for the next person to be kind to in the day yesterday. 
And I decided to do that out of a place of deciding to be more kind to myself. This stuff works, y'all. Please don't forget about the work of Jesus on the cross because that's what makes this grace possible. Because a primary message of the cross is forgiveness. Receive for yourself the forgiveness that God extends to you through Jesus when things go awry, when you miss the mark and things are not perfect. That's the good news of Easter. It's the good news of Jesus. God and Christ already ready to do that in our lives. So friends, be kind to yourself. Practice kindness in the world. Let go of perfectionism. Cultivate self-compassion. Do you all know the... Uh, the um, songwriter Leonard Cohen, does that name ring a bell for you? Um, you might have to be on the older side to get that, but um, he wrote this song a number of years ago. The title of it was Anthem. Now, it's not an overtly religious song, but his faith is underneath it. And here's this line um, in the song. It goes like this. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack a crack in everything. That's how the light gets in. My friends, we try to spackle over and hide our cracks. We try to make everything look just right, if not perfect. But I want to suggest that there actually can be beauty found in the cracks. Beauty can be found in the messy parts of life. Because it is in the crack that God can do God's best work in Jesus and has the capacity to transform a crack into grace. Grace for ourselves and grace for the world. And so again, friends, we are not defined by what, by what we have done by good or, by good or ill. We are defined by God's decision to love us so much, to be unrelenting in working to reconcile us back to God and to extend wellness and possibility of forgiveness through Jesus. Like the father in that story, God wants to embrace us in his arms. When we have fallen short, when we have when we have made a mistake, when we have failed, when we've failed to be perfect. God declares that you are loved. You are forgiven. You are good enough. And you are safe in God's embrace. Will you pray with me? Oh God, we, we talk about grace with our lips all the time. That your grace is amazing grace that your grace saves us and that we know your love because of your grace. But practicing feeling your grace, God, it's, it's so much harder. The pressures of our lives are on us all the time. The messages that we're not living up to any kind of perfect deal are all around us all the time. When we look in the mirror, we see imperfection. When we, uh, when we turn on the radio, we hear imperfection in our, in our lives. But God, you don't make junk. And you made me. And so God, I'm grateful for 
your grace and your love that you extend to me through Jesus. God, I would pray that in our lives here, folks coming online, all of us that are gathered, that you would, that you would by your spirit, help us to be kind to ourselves. Help us to push away that false narrative of what being perfect could do for us. And help us to be healthy strivers that we might be um, whole and well and have the capacity to joyfully serve you in the world and that our lives might be filled with your joy. It's not easy, but God, with your help, we can get there. Because at the end of the day, we want to be a church, we want to be a people who know the good news about your grace, your love, and your forgiveness in Jesus so that we can be ambassadors of that same good news in the world. Use us in that way, but transform us on the way. We pray this in all of our prayers in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen and amen.